Welcome back to the Vintage Investment Partners podcast, Vintage Voices. The following episode was recorded live at SuperVenture, part of Super Return in Berlin on February 26th. It's a conversation between Alan Feld and Scott Cooper. Enjoy. My name is Alan Feld. I'm the founder and managing partner of Vintage Investment Partners. For those of you who were in the room before, my partner Abe was here, so you probably heard we're a $2 billion fund-to-fund, secondary fund, and late-stage uh, investment group. Um, we have the honor um, of now having been invested in a number of uh, the Andreessen Horowitz funds. And, uh, and as they say, it's, uh, it's great to have Scott here uh, to talk a little bit about uh, what he's learned um, you know, in his years, both as an entrepreneur, uh, you know, operationally, and of, and of course uh, as, a, as a managing partner of uh, Andreessen. So some background about Scott. Uh, Scott, uh, as I mentioned, was managing partner of Andreessen Horowitz. He's responsible for all the operational aspects of running the firm. Um, he's been with the firm since inception. He was together with Mark and Ben um, in Opsware, uh, which was acquired by HP. And, uh, um, and before that, uh, he was a, an investment banker at Credit Suisse, Chris Boston, and Lehman Brothers, uh, graduate of Phi Beta Kappa of uh, Stanford um, in public policy and, and uh, has a law degree as well. Um, and he's chairman of Genesis Works, co-founder and director of the Stanford Venture Capital Directors College, co-founder and co-director of the Stanford Rock uh, Center's Guide to Venture Capital uh, Board Membership, um, and uh, is an executive of residence at the Haas School of Business uh, and a lecturer at Stanford Law School. Um, and he's also uh, the vice chairman of the investment committee of St. Jude's uh, Children's Cancer Research Hospital, Answers on the uh, investment committee for uh, Stanford Medical Center, the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, and the Lick uh, Wilmerding uh, High School. Uh, um, and, and Scott also uh, was chairman of the uh, NVCA, the National Venture Capital Association of the United States, a couple of years ago, and was really instrumental also in dealing with issues of diversity and harassment and, and other things, and really provided a, a lot of uh, guidance. and. He's also the father of Ashley, who I hope is going to become a venture capitalist because she's great. <laughs> um, Scott, you went through the 1999-2000 bubble. Yeah. Um, in a startup, actually, right? Uh, not as a VC, but you know, you, you, you and your partners have done research saying, um, and I don't know if it's you know, it's certainly been the case. Uh, the research was a couple years ago. Still, the case that you think we're not in a bubble. That this is uh, there's a lo- longer term story here. Um, around technological investment in particular, um, or are we at the precipice? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we've, we've written and talked about this quite a lot. I mean, I think it's, look, the comparison to 99-2000 is a very, uh, I think it's very different from 99-2000. So the big things to think about are, in 99-2000, I think the most fundamental difference you had was very small global internet population, right? So you had something like 180, 190 global internet users. Today, that number is somewhere four and a half billion, probably going to six billion, depending upon uh, you know, kind of which numbers you believe. And what that meant was, therefore, was that no matter how great some of these businesses were in 99, 2000, they never could have worked given that the addressable market just wasn't big enough to make sense, right? The cost of customer acquisition was too high relative to what the opportunity was. Um, and you saw this in, you know, you did something like 750 IPOs in the U.S. in 99 and 2000. The median size of those companies at the time of the IPO was something like $17 million in revenue. So these were incredibly immature companies. Um, we haven't actually done that same number of IPOs in the last 10 years cumulatively. We're still very, very far behind that. 
And then the biggest change, of course, that we've had in the IPO market, particularly in the U.S., is the length of time the companies are staying private is dramatically different, right? So it used to be companies would go public an average six, six and a half years from founding in the U.S. Um, that shortened to about four years in that bubble era, in that 99-2000 period. Today, it's about 10 or 12 years. And not surprisingly, therefore, you've got, instead of a median revenue of $17 million, you've got something like $170, $180 million median revenue. So I think when you just look at the maturity of companies, the scale of the market, and even when you look at relative valuations, particularly if you map things against kind of the growing role of technology in people's lives, uh, if you look at you know, dollar spend per internet user or you look at technology investments as a percentage of US GDP or other things like that, you'll find that we're well, well off kind of the highs uh, that we saw in 99-2000. That's not to say, look, that everything's cheap, which it's not, we all know that, and it's not to say that this is kind of a value-based business, but the comparisons, I think, to the 99-2000 bubble just kind of fall away pretty quickly when you start to look at the numbers. Yeah, and, and I remember that also because in 1996, seven, I was uh, um, a banker at Robertson Stevens. We worked on the Checkpoint public offering, and Checkpoint went public at $300 million, right? right? right. Now it's you know, a $20 billion company. Yeah. But if I look at, say, Uber, and I look at some of the other companies that have gone public later, yep. you know, the argument was, hey, we're going to do later stage investment in private equity, in private companies, or private uh, you know, venture companies late stage. And we'll still see that upside that's coming. Right. Well, right. what we've seen in many cases is the post-IPO performance has not been you know, stellar. So is that, uh, you think that's going to have an impact on yeah, uh, the IPO markets and uh... I think you. I think you have to. I think at least in the U.S., you have to kind of bifurcate the IPO market into a couple of different segments, basically, right? So there is the segment of you're right, which is kind of Uber and other players like that, which is relatively high cash burn businesses that are still growing at reasonable rates, but but uh, you know not uh, certainly as fast as they were. And there's, been no, there's no question if you just look at the performance of those companies that the public markets obviously have been less receptive to that. Now, it's hard to know whether that's because it's just people don't like high cash burn companies or people are unclear about what the long-term margin structures are for that business. Um, I also think it's somewhat a function of, look, there's a big meme, uh, particularly in the U.S., that we are late in cycle in the market. And so it's not surprisingly, therefore, if, if people believe you're late in cycle, that you tend to have companies that are you know, potentially higher cash burners um, you know, not trade as well. I think you know, it's a little bit unfair generally, I think, to look at kind of near-term trading activity for many of these companies because the large institutions tend to build their positions over long yeah, periods of time. But I think that's kind of one segment of the market. The other segment of the market, which is completely opposite, is the broader enterprise software market, right? right. So if you look at enterprise software today, um, you've got multiples that you know, kind of are trading at much higher multiples than they were even in 2015. Right. And, and I think what's happened there is, and, and those have generally performed you know, very well, the IPOs have generally performed very well. There's been you know, a few exceptions, but in general, if you look at you know, Datadog or Zoom or other companies like that that have gone public, right? they've traded you know, at incredible yeah. levels. I think what's actually happened there is I think the public markets are now realizing what the addressable market is for effectively vertical SaaS. Um, and I think it, it's taken the markets a long time. If you looked at private market valuations going back to kind of 2014, 15, uh, private market valuations of enterprise SaaS companies were ahead of what was being priced in the public markets. Today, there's much greater parity now. Uh, now, it could be that those are still, you know, who knows if those are the right valuations, but at least there's, there's better parity between public and private valuations on the enterprise software side than there were probably four or five years ago. And most of that is a function of the public markets actually having had multiple expansion on these companies. So time will tell, again, whether that's appropriate or not. But certainly, I think those IPOs have traded very, very differently. 
So, you know, again, going back to sort of the Uber example and, of course, yeah. you know, the WeWork blow up, right? Yeah. You know, I guess your perspective would be it would be almost, you know, very difficult to take companies public that are pretty cash without a clear visibility to profitability or does that affect your strategy of investment today? Yeah, look, I think it's very company specific. So I think it's, I think, I think you still have to be very company specific. Yes, I do agree that today, and let's put aside coronavirus, obviously, because that's, yeah, causing, that's, a, that's causing different that's gyrations that are hard yeah. to know yeah. what to deal with. But in general, right, if you looked at what the market was telling you is yes, in general, high cash burn with business models that are less familiar to the public markets relative to Look, enterprise software, we know the business model, right? We know it's going to have 70, 80, 90% gross margins. We know at scale they're going to generate 30 to 40% operating margins. And okay, they're burning cash a little bit today, but we, we, don't have to, we don't have to kind of, we don't have to imagine two things. We don't have to imagine they get to break even and we don't have to invent a new business model. On some of these other companies where the business models are still, you know, uh, less certain in the public markets and they're higher cash burn, yeah, I think that's a much harder story to take. So if you looked at your portfolio today and compared like your new investments that you're doing yeah. today, and looked at it, say, five years ago, is it more of a balance toward the enterprise stuff? As opposed yeah, to yeah, there's the definitely more. Consumer? If I look at, well, so it varies. If I look at the early stage, our early stage is relatively well distributed. Um, I'd say probably maybe a little bit more enterprise versus consumer today, but that's probably a function of just what the opportunity set is versus anything that's happening in the macro markets. It's definitely the case, yes, that I agree. If you look at the later stage market today, it's heavier uh, enterprise and actually financial services relative to consumer um, and some of that, again, still is, is an opportunity set question. There just happens to be, quite frankly, right now, a lot more happening, and these things will go in cycles. Um, and, but the analysis is, is still the same on all those, which is if you're going to do later stage investing today, you've got to feel comfortable that there's enough cash, obviously, in those businesses that they can, you know, if we do have a downturn, that they can weather that, and that you actually get comfortable at the unit economics level that these businesses, you know, make sense. Sure. Uh, that's like, and look, that's... That, that's never changed. I think it's just that's probably more heightened in people's views right now that, that you know, having seen some of the way these public companies have traded, that people are just, they're, they're more, um, you know, it's just, it's just more front and center in their thinking today. I think that probably, you know, from an actual long-term valuation perspective, probably, you know, never, never has changed in the market. It's just a more acute issue that people are focusing on right now. You know, one final general sort of question before yeah. I want to get to your book, and, and I also want to no, talk yeah. a little bit about the European market, your experience yeah. here as well. But... Um, on the general side, I, you know, I remember again going back um, in 1999, 2000. You also saw a big ramp up in in, in fund sizes, and to a certain extent, yeah. you know, then too, it wasn't called a unicorn, but people were looking, you know, for fairly substantial valuations. Right. Um, and I, there was almost a tendency of large funds to invest um, or to determine how much they were investing based on the fund size, their own fund size, and not necessarily how much the company needed. I mean, right. You know, fund sizes have gone up. Um, yeah. Do you think that is having an impact on uh, you know, the amounts that are being raised. Are we going back to that tendency of to invest how much we've got to invest and not necessarily how, many, how much the companies need and what's the impact of all that? I, I don't see that, uh, uh, and it's always dangerous to say this time is different, of right. course. Yeah. Um, I don't see that right now. Look, I think what's happened in the U.S. at least, and, and obviously a lot of our investing is U.S., so I think you've had a couple of trends that have happened. Number one is, um, you know, we never used to have an institutional seed market in the U.S., right? We used yeah. to have angels. Now we have an institutional seed market. That's dramatically changed the environment. I think it's done a couple mm -hmm. things. Number one is it's dramatically changed the competitive environment for traditional early-stage venture capitalists because they're no longer first money into the companies, right? It used to be if you were a 250 to $400 million early-stage fund in the U.S., 
you were first institutional capital. There was nobody upstream of you. That really has changed now. There's probably, you know, there's many, many seed players who are now upstream. That's, that's, that's forced everybody to kind of play in a much more competitive dynamic than it's there. Um, and, and so that's kind of thing number one. Thing number two is as a result of the seed market, I think what you're seeing in terms of deal sizes getting bigger is a function of the fact that the companies actually have more funding and therefore are more mature by the time they get there. So it's a little bit of, you know, kind of the seed is the seed is now the new A round, I guess, is kind of the way to think about it. And I'm not defending that, and that, that may not necessarily be a great thing. But I do think uh, what you see if you look purely at A round sizes, which have gone up, and B round sizes, which have gone up, I think it's hard to interpret those without recognizing that you've got this whole seed market there. And therefore, on an on a apples to apples comparison basis, my sense is the maturity of those companies is a little bit greater. Mm. So, so I think it's, it's absolutely true what you're saying, which is fund sizes are bigger and deal sizes are bigger. It's not clear to me that that's being driven by GPs saying, I need to size my deal bigger because of my fund size, as opposed the to the fact that the, that the status of the companies has changed. So, you know, look, we'll, we'll see over time what happens. But I think that's more the driver of it as opposed to individual GP behavior right now. So I want to dig into your book, which is, uh, if you haven't uh, bought the book, read the book, it's a fabulous book. Um, you know, even for those of us who've been in this industry for a long time, uh, it, you know, you can learn a ton from it. So I'd recommend uh, recommend the book strongly. Yeah, you had an interesting comment that I, I um, um, you know, this is all about both attracting the best entrepreneurs and and identifying them, right? Um, and you had a very interesting comment. Um, you say in the book that the uh, that the best companies are good ideas that look like bad ideas. Um, for all of those in, in this room who are investing into companies, what does that mean? Well, it's another take on, uh, you know, if you read, um, you know, Howard Marks from Oak Tree, right, if you read his stuff, you'll hear him, he'll, he'll call this non-consensus investing, right, or Andy Ratcliffe, who was one of the founders of Benchmark, used to call it that. It's, it's the same fundamental idea, which is if you do a quadrant of kind of, you know, there's good ideas and there's bad ideas, and the, the good ideas that are in fact, that look like good ideas and that are in fact good ideas, are just too obvious to earn economic rents on them, right? I mean, it's, too, it's, it's very hard to assume that you're going to be able to earn a venture-like return on something that is, you know, is well-known to be a good idea. And so the theory is, and this is actually my partner, Chris Dixon, who uh, you know, kind of invented this little quadrant, is what you're looking for is you're looking for good ideas that unfortunately look like bad ideas today. And they may look like bad because they're non-consensus or because they're non-traditional or because they just seem implausible, right? And so a lot of what at least we're trying to do, and I'm sure many of the people in the room who are venture investors are trying to do, is to find things that are effectively non-consensus where ultimately, therefore, you can, re you can earn economic returns that are much higher uh, with the idea that over time, those markets become more consensus, right? So uh, my, my, my favorite quote on this one is a great quote from, um, actually from Steve Jobs uh, in 07 when Steve Jobs was rolling out the iPhone. Uh, one of the reporters was doing a review for the iPhone and said, look, Steve, uh, this thing will never work because, uh, you know, the reporter was typing, you know, I think it was a male reporter, he was typing with his thumbs, and he said, look, I've got, you know, I keep making all these, you know, you know typos, and I can't possibly use this thing. And Steve Jobs has this fa very famous quote, which is, he says, your thumbs will learn. Um, <laughs> and to me, what's exciting, what, the, to me, that kind of encapsulates everything that is true of this idea of non-consensus stuff, which is, his, his, his base, the basic argument, what he was saying is, look, I didn't come, I'm not going to come ask the consumers what they want, right? What I have is I have something that's just well ahead of today what the consensus is, but over time the market will basically move to these non-consensus ideas. I mean, that's basically what I think people are trying to do in this business, and that's what we're looking for. And sometimes those are non-consensus because they're out of favor. Uh, you know, it's, 
you know, Google starting right when they're the you know 35th search engine and people have concluded that you can't make money in the search engine, right. or it's you know Facebook starting in 04 when everyone thought the technology market was dead. And so you know you're trying to find something that kind of puts it in that non-consensus bucket that then ultimately means if you're right, uh, it works. And, and the reason, as you know, right, having been in this business, you can deploy that kind of strategy in venture because uh, because of the power law nature of the returns, right, yeah. which is we can afford to be wrong on many things as long as you ultimately end up with a small number of these non-consensus things that drive outsized returns. It's much harder, obviously, in a more traditional business where you have capped upside. So the other way to think about the non-consensus piece is do you have uncapped upside in the success case in that business? If so, as part of a portfolio, you probably want to make that bet even if the likelihood of success of that individual company might be fairly low. Well, you know, which raises an interesting question, question itself. Yeah. As you said, you know, one of these non-consensus you know, non businesses can also be, you know, gigantic if they end up becoming consensus businesses. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been a, two different kinds of views, and we, when we started first investing in European venture funds, people were sort of looking more for base hits, doubles. Right. Right. Um, and I think people are now correctly looking at this as, uh, let's go for the elephants, let's go for the gigantic, you know, for the big home runs. How important are those home runs, even for a fund like Euro, uh, how important are those f home runs to to generating you know substantial returns? Well, look historically. I mean, look historically, the data shows that they are almost everything, basically, right? So historically, the data shows that something like you know seventy to ninety percent of most fund returns tend to come from yeah. a relatively smart number of companies that are the home runs. Now, look, there there's probably a business model, and so, and if people can do it, it's great. Look, if you can if you can figure out how to do the singles and doubles, right? If you can get you know if you hit can rate. consistently earn a couple yeah. times your money on a hit rate. That's fine. I think the challenge with that, at least if you're going to do early stage venture, is I think, look, we just know that if you're investing in things that are by nature startups, like, you know, maybe maybe you're that good that you can pick that, but I think the likelihood is pretty hard that you're going to be able to get a hit rate that is high enough in order to be able to make enough money on a doubles or singles strategy, basically. Now, now again, it's possible that that happens. That makes more sense in a buyout context, obviously, where you've got an established business and you're looking for operational transitions to try to kind of you know, get to that. But if you're basically trying to both invent a product, sometimes invent a category, and then ultimately, in some cases, you have to invent a new business model, you know, it seems like the odds are the odds are more likely that you're going to end up with much higher attrition rates, right? So the, the the challenge, of course, in our business, at least in the you know in traditional U.S. venture, if you look at this, the attrition rates are pretty high. You're talking about somewhere between 35 and 50 percent. You know, we use this great term impairment, right? Which means you know it's a very polite way of saying you lost all your money, right? But it's a you know it's a much more euphemistic way to say it. But the reality is like those rates are, are very high in the U.S. if you're deploying this home run strategy, and that home run strategy it only works therefore if you do in fact get those. Look, if you can figure out a way to do early stage venture with a much higher hit rate and therefore a much lower impairment strategy, then yes, you can kind of, I think, bet on the, the singles and double strategy. I just don't know. I don't know that that's realistic at early stage venture. I think that's more realistic at kind of maybe mid-stage where you have, you've at least taken some risk off the table. You've probably taken product market risk off the table and now you're focused on operational risk and therefore, you know, you probably have more likelihood of being able to manage a fund that has lower impairment ratios and also fewer home runs in that case. Yeah, we, we also saw it from our data. I mean, we've been you know, um, investing in funds for, since we started Vintage 18 years ago. And um, if we look at our top 10 funds, um, and we have a number that are you know, well over 5x, we don't have a single one that got, that in that top 10 that didn't have at least one company return 1.5x the right, fund. Right. Um, and, and what's and the? Do you remember uh, roughly what's the? What was the impairment ratio, or like what percentage? High. Of, right. 
Yeah, that's that's the interesting <laughs> thing that I've seen in the data too. Yeah, yeah. well, we've seen you know from our data, it's been it's been two two points. Yep. One is ownership. You know, keeping uh, significant ownership early on in the right. Uh, right. You know, if you're certainly if you're in an early stage venture fund. Secondly, is not treating all your kids equally. Yeah. In other words, you know, pumping your money into the better companies because yeah. if you own ownership, you know, significant ownership in your your huge companies, and you sort of cut the losers or find a home for the losers early. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the difference between, frankly, a great fund and maybe a good fund. Yeah, I think that's that's consistent with what we've seen. The other thing that's really interesting in the data is. If you look at you know good funds and not good funds, basically, uh, so call it like let's call it you know three x north funds and then you know whatever funds that you know are in the bottom quartile, um, the impairment ratio tends not to be materially different between those, uh, which is it's consistent with your data, which is you've got very high performing funds that also have very high impairment ratios. You know, it's interesting. Which, we, we're in on a primary basis in eight or nine uh, um, European funds, and it's true for the European funds. Is that as right? Well. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Because uh, okay. we have one fund that's uh, over a 10x, and, and and you know it was very driven by right. you know a couple of investments. Yeah. So I, I think it's true also in Europe as much as it is in, yeah. in the look, U.S. Maybe uh, maybe that will change over time. I don't know. I mean, it, it seems uh, it, it's it seems reasonable when you just think about the amount of risk you're taking at the early stage, and also the fact that look, you're you are ultimately trying to find things that have uncapped upside, and so like it, it you know that's not surprising that I think you have those numbers. But look, maybe there is a different strategy that that could be successful over time. So when you're looking at a company, I mean, you know, and, and a lot of the audience are VCs here. Right. When you're looking at a company, what are the four or five things that you must see before you do an investment? Yeah, look, I think it's probably the same that many of the people in the room are looking at, which is the way I think about it is I always think about market as kind of the first thing to at least get a sense of, which is it goes to this, this discussion we were just having. Look, if you're going to have high impairment ratios and you're banking on home runs, you have to at least assume, okay, look, is the, is the opportunity they're going after big enough that it can, it can self-sustain a standalone public company? So for us in the U.S., that probably means these days, look, it's very hard to be a small cap company in the U.S., so you probably have to assume you can get to at least a couple billion dollar market capitalization in the U.S., probably three plus billion dollars, and depending upon the industry you're in, that probably means... 300 to 500 million dollars of annual revenue and still growing at 35 to 50 percent a year. I think that's when, when, when we think of market. I think that's the way that's the way we try to think about it. Is okay if everything goes right, can you conceive of a world where you can still grow 35 to 50 percent in your primary market at a 300 to 500 million dollar you know revenue business? That's kind of thing number one. And then after that, look, so much of the decision at early stage then tends to come down to kind of the team aspect of it, right? I'm sure it's the same thing that many of you are doing here. Because if you assume it's a big market, you assume, therefore, it's going to be competitive, it's going to have a lot of entrance. So the question ultimately becomes, what is it about this, this team that makes them uniquely qualified to do it? And so we think of team really basically in two dimensions. One is kind of the idea of founder market fit, right? So everybody's probably heard of product market fit. The founder market fit, of course, is the same analogy, which is, what is it about this set of this founder or set of founders that uniquely suits them to this particular market opportunity? So maybe it was their PhD thesis, or maybe they were in you know 8200 in the in yeah. the army, and, and they are the world you know yeah. renowned security expert on certain things. But something that uniquely qualifies them to do that. The the only exception to that um, that sometimes is true is sometimes having no knowledge of a business actually gives you an advantage. Uh, so uh, there's a great great quote uh, I think I have it in the book from. Uh, the founder of Southwest Airlines in the U.S., which is a low-cost you know, air carrier, a guy named Herb Kelleher, he was a lawyer by background, and he started this airline, and he was asked, you know, what, what makes you think you can start an airline? And his answer was, because I know absolutely nothing about the airline industry. <laughs> so every now and then, I guess, kind of, you know, benign neglect or lack of knowledge could be a good thing, but in general, I would say probably most VCs would probably rather you have some, some knowledge of the industry. 
And then the other thing we think about is, you know, we use the concept in the book of like storytelling or leadership, but it's what is it about this founder or, or, or founding team that is going to cause, what, the way I think about it is, what is going to cause people to do irrational things uh, and ultimately join this company as an employee or be willing to, as a customer, buy something from this product, right? How compelling are they in telling a story and not making up a story, but telling, creating a vision that causes people to ultimately you know, follow them in a way that, you know, quite frankly, in many ways is irrational. It's irrational for you to, you know, quit your good paying job that you have at a more stable company and join a startup unless you really kind of fundamentally believe that individual and believe the story sure. they're telling. And so, so much of that kind of, particularly in an environment like Silicon Valley where we have such a competitive uh, employment market, right. the ability to basically be able to tell a story that is so compelling uh, is really critical. And look, after that, then we're looking at, of course, you know, what's the go-to-market model look like, you know, kind of what's the financing strategy look like, all those other things. But I think you have to kind of get, at the early stage, you have to kind of really focus on market and team uh, kind of as the major components. And then I think these other things are interesting kind of, you know, idea maze problems, which is how did people get to the answers to these? But, you know, until we get a product into market, I think everyone realizes, you know, kind of, too much, too much uh, kind of generalization of that. It's just not that useful until you actually get some feedback from the market. And, and you guys obviously have been big proponents, proponents of a product market fit before you put in a lot of money. You talk a lot about this in the book. Right. What, what, how do you know, at least, you know, what's your model at, Andrew, at, at you know, 816Z? How do you know a company's hit product market fit and now you should really put your, to, your foot to the floor? Yeah. It, it varies by industry, and, and look, I'm not sure that there is a single answer for all of them, but I would say, look, on the enterprise side, what we're really trying to look for is, like, is there enough organic pull from, from the market so that, you know, if you look at, like, do you have constraints on, you know, kind of your ability to get in, you know, is, is the number of sales reps you have ultimately becoming a constraint to your growth as opposed, and so you can see that by, you know, looking at individual quota performance of sales folks right. or, you can, uh, the other thing, of course, we'd like to look at on the enterprise side is what does net upsell they're, look in like? In other words, they're all hitting quota. Or, exactly, or right. So, so yeah, so have you, have you kind of gotten to the point where you're, the impediment to growth in the market is not having enough feet on the street as opposed to you haven't actually cracked the sales model yet and you still have high variabil very high variability among your sales team? Um, we look for things like, you know, kind of net upsell inside of companies, right? So do you have organic pull yeah. coming from customers that the product's working? Right. You know, you know today's, in today's day and age, look, there's a lot of these enterprise software companies you can see that's got, that have 130, 140% net retention on their customers, meaning right. essentially, right, they're growing 30 to 40% right. just organically inside. Uh, you know, on the, on the consumer side, it's really more, um, you know, you're looking for whatever the measure, the appropriate measure of engagement for that particular model is, is it working, right? So if it's a network effect business, right, do you actually, you know, do you have kind of, you know, good demand and supply, you know, balance in, in the markets you're going after? Have you figured out ways, hopefully, to kind of figure out how, how can you kind of drive customer, customer, customer acquisition down over time, rely less on paid acquisition channels, more organic channels, right? Are there elements of virality or other things that kind of drive that? So it's, it's a little bit, you know, specific to the particular opportunity, but it's, it's, it's the evidence, what you're looking for is evidence that what you put out in the market actually has real demand, and that demand can be driven by some of these financial metrics, or it's driven by, you know, kind of, you know, declining costs in terms of acquiring those customers. The final area, and if we have enough time, I'm going to ask, uh, I'll make room for, uh, make some time for questions. Um, Europe. You yep. guys have made a few investments here. What's been your experience? What do you plan on doing here? Um, how does what you've done here compare to what you see in the U.S.? 
sort of general thoughts on your Yeah, point. so yeah, I'll give you general thoughts. So look, we are still, as you know, right, we're still a very U.S.-centric firm. So right. if you look at our investments today, probably, you know, 90-plus percent of what we've done has been in the U.S. Uh, we've got a few investments uh, in the U.K. We've done a few things in Israel, right. obviously. Um, we've of late done a few things in Latin America. Um, I would describe those all as still, um, those, those stem from either existing relationships that we had either with other investors mm -hmm. or existing relationships with entrepreneurs in those markets, as opposed to us saying, okay, let's go spend X amount of time per month in those markets. And that's not a normative statement about them. I think they're actually all incredibly attractive markets. The issue for us is uh, really two things. One is just... Um, uh, we have a very, uh, as, as you know, as an LP, um, we spend a lot of time post-investment with our company. So right. we have a very big, a very big focus of our headcount in our uh, organization is actually on the post-investment side. You're also drinking out of a fire hose. Your deal flow is phenomenal. Well, there's a lot of stuff. Look, there's plenty of things yeah. happening generally in the U.S., yeah. right? So, um, so for us to go into a new market, we can't really just drop a general partner into a new market. We'd have to do that. Right. We'd have to drop a general partner in and then also figure out how we're going to support those companies on the post-investment side. So, you know, at some point in time, yes, like, you know, uh, looking in markets outside the U.S. will probably become a bigger opportunity for us. But for right now, like that's a pretty big operational lift as it's still a relatively young firm. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so that's, that's the main reason why we haven't done it. But look, I think there's no reason to believe, you know, there's it, it, every reason to believe, I should say, that if we're sitting here 10 or 20 years from now, like the markets will continue to be much more global. So, you know, the, the best example of that is, is 20 years ago, U.S. venture capital was 90% of the entire uh, pie, basically. Yeah, Today, the U.S. is about 50%, right? Yeah. And, and clearly, China has been a major sure. beneficiary of that. But I don't think there's any question that, like, talent is, is equally and well distributed, that you will see more hubs popping up over time. And I think the question for every venture capital firm is, you know, look, if you have global aspirations, you will ultimately have to kind of be present in those markets. There are many firms, and we just haven't figured out for ourselves, where it just may be, look, we're just going to focus on one geographic market and try to be, you know, the best in that market and, and you know, quite frankly, seed other markets to players who are local in those markets. Will you require for you to make an investment in a European company that the CEO move to the U.S.? No. We have, uh, you know, well, for the few investments we have, well, you're the answer is no. Yeah, transfer-wise um, is probably the most substantive investment we have yeah. in the U.K. right now. The answer is no. I think it's, someone answered it on the last panel. I think the the issue to think about for us as U.S. investors is, the, the, the fundamental question is, what does your home market look like, right? And so look, you know, you and I have talked about this, yeah. right? And it's no secret. Like, we know that Israel as a home market just right. isn't big enough to support stuff. Exactly. And so it's just, you know, so, you know, it's more likely that you're gonna go to Europe or the U.S. first for sure. those markets. And then the only other question I think as a U.S. investor going into international markets is, is there enough, if these companies work, is there enough critical mass of engineers and executives and everything else that needs to happen? One of the things that's happened in the U.S., in ancillary markets outside Silicon Valley that has sometimes been harder an impediment to growth is they're missing one of those elements. Either they don't have a big enough uh, bench of developers and engineers so that they can get from 50 to 100 people to you know, several thousand, or sometimes they haven't had enough executive bench uh, to, to kind of, again, scale the businesses. Uh, and so I think that's the only question. I, look, I have no reason to believe that that's not true everywhere else outside the US, and I'm sure there are plenty of places, but I think if you've got, that's the question I think as a U.S. investor or as coming into any other geography is do you have enough infrastructure? And look, my sense is that's happening all over the world right now. And so I think those impediments are all going away. And look, if I were betting, I think it's, it's, you know, it's an easy bet to assume that like, we're not going back to 90% U.S. venture capital dominance. Like this will, be, this will continue to be a very distributed market. Abby, do we have a question? Room for one question? Two yes? questions, all right. All right, please. Question. 
looking at your historical portfolio and the companies that didn't make it <laughs> in the B2B space and in the consumer space, what are the two or three top items for failure for a B2B and for a consumer play? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a couple. Yeah, I think that's right. So look, I think on the B2C space, Sometimes you know the failures look. Sometimes the products just don't take in the market period, right? And so look, that's that's a risk of the business. Quite frankly, uh, you'd probably do those investments again. That's just that's just part of being in this business. Is uh, you know we had a wonderful company that was trying to build a new mobile web browser. It was a great company. It, we ultimately sold it to Yahoo. They they got to a couple hundred thousand users, and you know the the market just wasn't what they thought it was. And, and look, that's okay. That happens. And that's fine. Um, you know, Alan whispered it, but I think it's true, which is, look, I think the, most of them tend to be team and organizational issues. Most of the reasons for failure tend to be that, right? So you, you got obviously the product has to work and has to get in the market, but more often than not, the market's there, the product is there, and they, their go-to-market strategy didn't make sense, or they failed to hire executives at the right time and, and didn't do stuff. They didn't execute marshal their execution. cash. It's all, it's all yeah. team execution stuff, yeah. right? So... I think, I think, you know, there might be more of a product market thing sometimes on the B2C side. Yeah. On, the, on the enterprise side, it's all about uh, operational execution. Scott, thanks for time. This was great. Thank you. Appreciate, appreciate it. it.